Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we're on Zero Books, and we have a really special guest who, for most people who do theory on YouTube, the internet, and that's sort of their space, they've definitely come across his work, or at least his seminar work. Bernard Harcourt, who is a professor of law and political science at Columbia, He's the editor of a myriad of texts, many of Foucault's lectures, and most recently, he is the author of Critique and Praxis. But today, we're very excited to have him on for a much more recent essay, specifically on critical genealogy, which we will have the link to in the description. But what this text attempted to do to lay out is the state of genealogical inquiry in contemporary scholarship, its relationship to coding and to its uh, subsequent decoding as it enters into the university as a general practice. Of course, one of the fundamental concerns for Foucault when he laid out the stakes of genealogy in his 1976 lecture, Society must be defended. So it's entering into the discourse at a remarkably important time. But today with us, we have Matthew and Adam. Matthew and I have done quite a bit of work on Michel Foucault, either in our graduate stuff or more generally on Acid Horizon. So thank you so much for coming on today, Bernard. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here. I really enjoy your podcasts and your interviews and everything you've been doing to disseminate a critical thought. So congratulations to you for all the work you're doing, Will and Adam and Matthew, and thanks for having me. Well, thank you. So, you, you know, I first came across your work when I was an undergraduate in and taking some pre-law courses. And I was surprised because I had just first been, I just started to be exposed to Foucault. And I was shocked that there was someone who was able to take Foucault into a place like Columbia Law. <laughs> and I've always wondered because the way in which you engage with critical theory, both contemporarily and in the tradition ranging from, you know, its origins in Horkheimer all the way through to its responses in figures like Michel Foucault, right? And essays like The Subject and Power. I've always wondered what, what is it like to navigate these theorists as you also have to navigate this other space in New York, the legal space? And what has Foucault brought to either yourself or to students you've had? How is it impacting your practice as a professor of law? Okay. All right. Well, you know, I think that all of the theorists that we care, who we care about, whether it's people who are interested in the Frankfurt School and Horkheimer and Adorno originally, or people who are interested in Deleuze and Foucault and what becomes or gets called post-structuralism, or any of the critical thinkers that so many of us care about, whether it's, you know, Edward Said or uh, Gayatri Spivak, I mean, anybody who cares about this work cares about it because of what, how it can help us think through contemporary crises and think about our praxis. And I think oftentimes I say that as if it's obvious, but I would say that oftentimes that it's not obvious and we fall back into kind of 
philosophical ways that are very detached from the concrete reality of our circumstances. And there's always this kind of push and pull, this tug between kind of philosophizing as a way of life, which becomes very abstract and incredibly fulfilling, but ungrounded versus, you know, militating, organizing, doing practical work. And I think it's, a, it's always a balance, but I would say that these authors who we care about and read and are in dialogue with did really care about having an impact, being able to bridge kind of critique and praxis, right? And so sometimes it, it's possible to get lost with these critical thinkers in a space that feels very distant from reality and from praxis. But I think that, but I think that if, if you want to be true to them, you have to kind of place them in context. Foucault, one of his most remarkable texts is obviously Discipline and Punishment. I know, Will, you've talked about it and you've described it and discussed it and Adam and Matthew as well. That text, now, in a sense, you can take the, you know, 30,000 foot view of it and, and it can be extremely theoretical and somewhat jargony, but that text was intended to be a kind of punctual intervention at a moment in time in the 1970s, mid-1970s, when France, again, it's a French text. It's intended to be an intervention in the French context. It's about French history. It's about the birth of the French prison, right? It's not a, it's not a global text. It was historically situated, geographically situated, and it was intended to be an intervention in a very concrete context where the Maoist students had been arrested and incarcerated. There was like hundreds of Maoist students in prisons and the work that he was doing with the sheep interacted with the book that he was writing. And he was trying to, he was trying to show to the world that the easy, dis, the easy kind of privileging of Western liberal democracy by contrast, say to the gulag in the Soviet Union, that we needed to think more about it because in our own liberal space in France at the time, there was a carceral archipelago, right? And that distinction between the gulag archipelago, which everybody knew about, but the carceral archipelago that people didn't know about in France, in a Western liberal democracy, was what he was trying to get at. That's a, you know, that's a motivated book. It's not, now, it does extraordinary high-level philosophical work right? It creates, well, a method, genealogy, which we can talk about. It draws on this work on what he called power knowledge, right? Uh, or he called it savoir pouvoir, knowledge power, the way in which forms of knowledge, the, the things that we come to believe are in, in fact shaped, invented, and made within context of relations of power. I mean, these are very high-level theoretical interventions that in a way form modern political thought. And I can say more about that. And I realize I'm talking too much, so I'll try and, I'll try and end this paragraph. But, you know, it, at a high theoretical level, it transforms modern political thought. Foucault has to be thought of, in this context, discipline and punish 
1975 as a bookend to Hobbes and Hobbes's notion of sovereignty, power and sovereignty. Foucault gives us a completely different view of power, what he talks about relations of power, knowledge power. That is at a high, you know, theoretical, philosophical level, you know, when you're teaching pure philosophy, that is an extraordinary philosophical contribution, but it was wedded to, right, a concrete intervention. It was wedded to trying to make an intervention in the discourse of the mid-1970s at a time of real political conflict. I mean, this, you, we have to realize now the 1970s were a time of radical political conflict and a lot of violence, right? The Red Brigade, right? The Bader Manhof Gang, the Weather Underground. I mean, these were movements that were intentionally taking arms at a time following a late decade of a lot of student movements and whatnot. And the book was intended to be an intervention to help us understand the moment and figure out how to act, right? Now, you know, so, you know, I do that in a sense, I've taken that approach in my work at law school, whether it's you know, at Columbia now and in my own work as a death penalty lawyer, which I mean, I, I've, I've dedicated my, you know, the last three decades to being a death penalty lawyer as well as, as well as working on these philosophical questions, but also in my teaching in political science here and at the University of Chicago and elsewhere. I mean, I take that approach to try to address kind of concrete controversies and problems in a way that is informed by critical theory, but that bridges theory and practice, critique and praxis. And you were talking about, you know, against prediction earlier, Will, that book, which, you know, was a critique of racial profiling at an early time. It was from 2005. I think it was published in 2005, but it was in the, in the aughts. It was at a time when there was a kind of dominating discourse from economists uh, many of whom were doing very high-level law and economics work, particularly at the University of Chicago, where I was at the time. But but they were trying to show that actually racial profiling was efficient. It's efficient policing. Now you know that's a that you know you in order to take that on, you really need to start thinking about doing a genealogy of notions of efficiency or going into their models, going into their economic models. I mean, crunching the equations with them to see what they're actually doing, but bringing in this critical lens. And so, you know, it's, I mean, I've always tried to do this bridging of critique and praxis in particular debates, in particular contexts, whether it's, you know, order maintenance policing or what's been called, you know, broken windows policing, which is a perfect form of discipline, actually. So, I mean, the resonance is there or in the context of racial profiling, the context of the illusion of free markets, which was about mass incarceration and, and the racialized transformation of this, of this, of this mass incarceration that we have in, in, in the United States or in the context of, you know, the war on terror in the counter-revolution, et cetera. It's always kind of it is grounded. And what I try to do is bridge then, you know, the more concrete debates with the philosophical insights of someone like Foucault or others. Yeah. Uh, I think what is so sort of powerful about the Foucauldians analysis or the genealogical analysis ultimately is, as you said, this link between power and knowledge. 
And I think the way that you know, maybe you can bridge the gap between theory and praxis is a partisan theory for a partisan praxis. I think this is what you know, Foucault is talking about when we hear about the insurrection of knowledges. Not to say that there's no descriptive element, as you say in your keynote, of course, but there's a descriptive, there's a selective aspect to the description, which makes it different from, say, a conventional descriptive history, which of course is always written from a certain kind of position of an overarching, unifying scientific, you know, standpoint. So I was wondering if you could just go a bit more into the distinction between the genealogy and, you know, and these seemingly presentingly neutrals sort of traditional notions of his, of descriptive history. Right, 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 right. Yeah, because that's what he develops basically in the, at the end of the 1960s, it starts to appear in, in, in the archaeology of knowledge, but then it really is developed and this method that he calls genealogy, which is in a way, it is what I would call a motivated critical historical approach that, that he starts developing in, in lectures such as the punitive society, but then ultimately we see it in discipline and punish. Now, I just, I think, you know, let's just, the, let's just understand the basic concept of genealogy for a second. So to make it, I mean, because all these terms need to be somewhat clarified and made simple. Things get a little bit too jargony, but very simply a genealogy, which, you know, the, the first place philosophically that it enters into critical discourses is really with Nietzsche's book, The Genealogy of Morals, right? Which had a great influence on, well, which Foucault interprets in many of his texts. But what, he, what the idea of genealogy that Foucault develops is this idea that what we have to do is we have to see how our belief systems and our practices were born, how they were invented, how they were created and how they come into existence and then come to become so naturalized that we don't even see them. All right. The genealogical work in a way is to try to trace some existing practice or institution back to its original creation so that we can identify places where, where we could have gone in a different direction. Okay. And what's important about genealogies is that they often don't take the obvious historical path back. So let's just talk about his genealogy of the prison, which is well understood and well known. His genealogy of a prison, he's not trying to trace the history of those institutions that have detained people. And Will, you're sitting in one of those institutions right there behind you is, is the Panopticon. I assume that's an old picture of Stateville, although I'm not sure. Is it Stateville, USA? Yeah. Uh, so Stateville was a famous prison outside of Chicago. I used to take my students there to visit that Panopticon, although it didn't look like that in the 2000 and 2007, 2008, when I was still in Chicago, but there were four of those in Stateville. There was one left. The other three had been taken down. It was turned into a COVID ward actually during COVID tragically. In any event, when we trace the history of that institution and the prison that has existed today, we don't just go back to like all of the interesting institutions that housed people and detained people going back to, you know, the debtor's prison and then going back to a medieval dungeon and then going back to, well, an ancient 
Greece and in Rome, there were also prisons. You know, the, the Gaulois, the, the French Gaulois was incarcerated in the Carcere in Rome and, you know, he was executed too. But I mean, those were prisons too. But that's a kind of, that's a linear history of prisons. And, and it's, you know, it's got some interest, but it's, it doesn't explain, it doesn't explain how the prison became such a universal phenomenon of importance, right? And the meaning of the prison in 1975. Now, note, this is 1975. This is before mass incarceration. This is before, incar I mean, mass incarceration in the United States starts in 1973. And you see, I mean, if you look at the actual trends, it's like a flat for 50 years, and then it's an exponential increase in incarceration. We're not talking about a little bit more incarceration. I mean, in the United States, it's exponential. The curve looks like that. Okay. And this was written before this happens in a way. It was very prescient of the way in which the prison was taking over our minds and the punishments fear. And what Foucault wants to do is you essentially, it's like, no, I'm not going to do a, an ordinary history and just talk about, you know, the dungeons and the medieval ages. I want to understand how did this way of seeing the world, this way of understanding the world, this, what he called a regime of truth, right? In which we believe that the prison and correcting people, rehabilitating people, disciplining people is what we have to do. And we have to do it not only in the prison, we also have to do it in the factory where we need to create docile bodies. I know you've talked a lot about the creation of docile bodies in your previous conversations and in the factory and in the church and in the school, right? And it's how did it become? And so what he shows is you know, he's not going to trace an ordinary history. He's going to try and find out where did this discipline come from, right? And so what he does is he tries to, he shows how in the beginning of the 18th century, there's a transformation of social modes of control from the much more physical, a corporal, coercive, explicitly kind of physically coercive forms of control to a form of discipline of creating docile bodies. It's a story that is actually in conversation with Marx in a very interesting way, because what he wants to show is that this creation of docile bodies was necessary for the industrial revolution, that the accumulation of capital went hand in hand with the accumulation of bodies, and that this was the technology of creating docile bodies for the industrial revolution. Okay. So exactly. It's the creation of a punitive society as he lectures about in 1972, 73. So as you can see, it's not a conventional history of prisons. What it is a history of the way in which our mindset of rehabilitation throughout society comes into existence. And actually what's interesting is that the prison is just one of the various institutions and practices that is disciplining. It's a history really of the formation of discipline across society, in the factory, in schools, the whole movement towards, you know, schooling with, you know, people sitting at a desk in the proper position in a proper row, one after the other, right? The plates in that book are essential and they're not all reproduced actually. So we, uh, I was 
editing the official French version of Discipline and Punish for the works. And we included all the plates because they are so telling. But the plates of school children and of how you're supposed to hold your pen this way and how you're supposed to put position your legs when you're writing, all of those 18th century forms of disciplining across society is the transformation that he sees that gives birth then to the prison as the carceral institution, right? And it's important that it's a transformation across all of society. So, I mean, so that's what he's tracing in there. And that is what a genealogy is. It's a genealogy that shows us how we came to believe what we believe, which is that, you know, we need to rehabilitate or we need to correct You know, that's how Department of Corrections came into existence. All of that, how that's born. And, you know, the other, the directions that we took and the directions that we left behind and the other directions that we could have taken. Right. And always, though, what makes these genealogies important is their critical aspect, the fact that they are critical histories. And sometimes Foucault called them critical histories. Other times he calls them genealogies. I mean, one of the things you have to understand is that, you know, philosophy, there's always a marketing aspect to philosophy, right? So the term becomes genealogy and Foucault sticks with it in a way because you know, he's identified with it and, you know, we all identify genealogies with Foucault and whatnot, but it's a form of a critical history in Nietzsche's sense, or, or and Foucault used that term also critical in the sense that it is trying to also guide our action, right? And that's the key element that we find in, in, in Nietzsche's work and in his early text on the uses and disadvantages of history for life, right? For life. That's the key. In other words, for our lives, for our action. And of course, Nietzsche starts that text. And uh, I think I started my essay with that first sentence from that early text of Nietzsche, which is basically, look, I hate any kind of knowledge that isn't going to help me with my action, right? And in part, the idea of a genealogy was to help us with our action, help us understand where we are today the paths we could have taken, the contingencies of the modern period, and then, and, and, you know, and to help us think through how we might be able to move forward in a way. And hopefully that sets a little bit of a, you know, a stage for what a genealogy is versus just an ordinary history. Yeah. Sorry, Matthew, go ahead. Yeah, no, it does. It's also just a good point to sort of get onto this other question, but this question of sort of, of normativity in Foucault's work. So this is something I don't know if we've talked about it very much on our podcast in the past, but I read Foucault when I was doing my master's degree in law, legal and political theory. It was mainly, many jurisprudence, frankly, but I came across him there and some essays by Raymond Goyce on Nietzsche and genealogy as well. And ever since then, I've been bothered by this question about normativity in Foucault. Right. The classic sort of Fraser and Habermas critiques. And right. Because they bother me in a way because I love reading Foucault and I find him just absolutely essential for understanding the world in a sense. But there's something about their critique, which I haven't yet been able to find the right way, a satisfying way of addressing that. And in this essay, you address this question head on because what's at stake here, I think, is the question of, is this question of the link between theory and praxis? Because it's obvious that in Foucault's life, I sense, I suppose, you know, always work with prison information group and, and many others, but he's committed to practices of liberation and, and, and freedom. But how, there's this question of how it connects up with the actual writing itself, isn't there? I mean, this is what Fraser and Habermas and 
others as well have sort of tried to pick him apart on. And so this is something that you address in this paper. And I was hoping you could sort of say a little bit, maybe just a little bit for the listeners who aren't familiar with exactly the details of what's going on there. How do you approach that? How do you try and unpick this question of freedom and liberation in Foucault's work when there's this overarching question of how normative or not it actually is? Right. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's a thorn in the debate that has yeah. been there for decades now. And I had the same kind of concern as you are. Uh, particularly when I was early on, also actually working with Goyce, who was my professor back at, when I was an undergrad. <laughs> no, that. Things go around. Amazing. So look, I've ultimately come to the conclusion that this question of the quote unquote normativity or not of Foucault is really a false dilemma and in a way dishonest, but sadly, I think the dishonesty is, is, well, I think there's a lot of dishonesty in this debate about the quote unquote normativity of Foucault. And to a certain extent, Foucault himself was not entirely transparent in his own work. In some of his interviews, yes, but in some of the work, not necessarily. Now I say dishonest in part because the, you know, the Habermasian and subsequent critiques of Foucault for being crypto-normative, right? Depend on yeah. this notion that, you know, Habermas is, that, that, that Habermas in part can say things that are not normative, but factual, uh, fact about facticity issues, like, mm. you know, certain things about discourse or not, when in fact it's entirely normative what's going on. So I would say that, yes, Foucault's work was normative through and through, but not in the obvious way in which he was saying anything like, you should believe X or you should believe Y and here is Y, which is the traditional normative way that we engage in discourse. It was normative through and through in his selection of topics to engage. In his selection of what it was that he was studying, he was studying madness, forms, the relation to mental questions. He was studying sexuality, right? Now, and in part, these grew out of biographical intersections, although I never feel that it's really important to mine those. It's important to be conscious of them, but I don't think it's important to use those in a kind of psychotherapeutic way to understand the work. But there's no question that Foucault was dealing with issues of mental health himself, having tried to commit suicide as a young student. He was dealing with his histories of sexuality himself feeling very alienated from his environment because of his homosexuality and he was dealing with issues of punishment and those are the issues that he writes about now so the choice of topics and the choice of trying to interfere in those spaces is normative 
it's inevitably normative. There's no way that you could, there's the choice of what we work on and how we try to intervene is something of our normative decisions about what is important and what isn't important. And I would say that the way that his work functions normatively is to make us have an experience reading the work that transforms us and transforms our relationship to the world and how we deal with the world, what we think of and how we try to repair it in a way. He was very explicit about this in some interviews in 1978 called Remarks on Marx, or they were published as Remarks on Marx. They were interviews with Duco Badori. Um, and famously combative interview at certain points. Yes, famously combative, but one of my favorite interviews where he is very transparent and he talks a lot about this notion of experiencing a book. Right. And there's a way in which I think that captures perfectly the normative work of a book like Discipline and Punish. He explained, he said, look, you know, I'm dealing with historical facts. Okay. It's not like I'm not making this stuff up. Right. You can check my facts. Okay. I mean, like, I'm not, you know, this is not fiction. Right. I'm talking about, you know, what, you know, what people wrote at particular times, in particular context, you can go look at the, you can go look at what was written. You can see that I haven't misquoted the site, the citation, you know, I'm giving you citation. I'm giving you, I'm doing social scientific work, a historical work like anybody else, like we normally do. And you can, you can, you can measure that. You can tell me whether I made a mistake or not, right? You can tell me whether, you know, I was wrong. No, the book actually wasn't published in, you know, 1840 or, you know, Mitre, the juvenile home wasn't opened in 1840. It was opened in, you know, 1865. And maybe that makes a difference. Not true. Opened in 1840, whatever. But I mean, you can kind of check my facts. You can do fact checking, right? But you can do all the fact checking you want, but that's not really how the book works. The book works in its interpretation of those facts and in your, the reader's experience of reading that interpretation and understanding it, right? It's so the way, and he's very explicit about this. It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable passage because I was particularly interested in it was as I was writing this essay a few months ago, because we're editing new lectures of his that are appearing that are before the Collège de France. So that his famous 13 years of lectures, which we covered in Foucault 1313, are from 71 to 84 when he passes away. But now we're, we're editing earlier lectures. And, and he gave a series of lectures on, on Ludwig Binswanger, who was a, a psychiatrist who invented existential psychiatry, existential analysis. And it's there actually that you see, yes, Dasein's analyse, which is so related to kind of the Heideggerian notion of Dasein and also in an interesting way to, to later to Sartrean existentialism. But you see in there, and these were lectures that he delivered very early and he actually, he was writing very early. He translated, he wrote an introduction and he translated Binswanger's work, 19, it gets published in 1954. It's his. It's the second major publication of him as a young postdoctoral scholar of your ages, you know, and, uh, and he talks a lot about the experience. It's what comes out of Dasein's analyse, the, like trying to understand the experience. And what he says is 
you know, my books are like that. They are an experience. They function as an experience. And you can read Discipline and Punish. And I think it will, I think it will have an effect on the way you understand the world. And I've seen this. I've heard it as well. I've seen it. The, I've seen the way in which I, I have a, I'm working with a colleague, a legal scholar, attorney, a very accomplished attorney who was rereading Discipline and Punish recently and was telling me, you know, boy, I feel, I actually am feeling the discipline in our legal scholarship context in a different way, right? There's like feeling so much the rules of what we have to do and what we have to not say. And, you know, all of these forms of discipline. And in a way that was exactly what the book was intended to do normatively, right? <laughs> normatively what it's intended to do is we some a reader reads it and understands the world differently sees the world differently experiences it differently experiences in the west say in liberal democracies the forms of discipline that surround us that are often hidden right and that render us docile uh, that make us obey that make us orderly in a way. But that was the book, the experience, what it was, a way of transforming us. And of course, in that essay, this is 78, in that interview, 78, of course, he's moving towards questions more, moving back to or more towards questions of subjectivity at that time. And those questions of how we are transformed as subjects, how we are shaped as subjects, is something that is keenly on his mind. But I think that it's in that way that the book functions normatively to transform us. Now, I said earlier, you know, not, there's a little bit of dishonesty all around here because I mean, I, Foucault doesn't say in Discipline and Punish, like at the beginning, okay, reader here, I'm going to give you an experience, right? That is going to hopefully transform you and make you think differently about the world and maybe act differently, right? In a way for it to work, maybe we, we don't say that. Right. I feel as though, though, that, that the book opening with Damien being torn apart right. on the scaffold yeah. and allowing the brutality of the child, Bisset, standing before the judge and he's asked, like, don't you, don't you have an apprenticeship? Don't you have parents or a job? And the child goes, I'm somewhat, I think I'm 36 years old. You know, I don't really need an apprenticeship. The bourgeois are always grumbling. And then, of course, he's given two years in a reformatory and he's horrified by it for just one second. And then he regains his smile and he says, that's only 24 months. Let's be off. Or the illegalists or the chain gangs. I think discipline and punish, if it's said from the get-go, this will transform the way you think, or I, my goal is to transform the terror of that book, the way in which it shakes you would be less effective. I mean, right. you know, I think, right. of, I, I think of Foucault's comment on Nietzsche in a later interview where he says, you know, I read Nietzsche and I had to walk away from my life. And that's the relationship I had with Discipline and Punish. I read Foucault and I just simply had to walk away from so many elements of my life. I love your comment about the faculty member you're working with because it is, I think, a transformative text. I do believe that it's the most powerful 
you know, it may not be the most theoretically dense of his works, right? Like punitive society, society must be defended, penal theories and institutions. These are extraordinarily remarkable books on everything from Hume's habit to illegalism of dissipation. But discipline and punish, what makes it special is the panopticon. It's these experiences that it forces you through. So this idea of experience, I think is I think the way you framed it is perfectly, it's just absolutely perfect at the level of experience. So I just wanted to, if you, to, to intercept you there. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the panopticon, right? I mean, what's brilliant is capturing an entire way of thinking in an object or icon or image. And he's able to do that in a remarkable way that the panopticon prison is a fascinating way to encapsulate the whole aspect of being watched, being internalizing the discipline, right? From that central tower. We can't see Will because your head is in the way, but it's the central tower that like sees everybody and everybody internalizes it. And, and it is in a way the experience really is magnified by capturing particular images, I think, by capturing particular ways of that, I- icons. In a way, though, your comment about the plates is, yeah. you know, I had the opportunity and maybe some people, like I, a piece that I wrote focused on uh, that depiction of the tree in the orthopedic, oh, right? Right, 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 right. And again, it goes back to this question of the way in which Foucault, like Nietzsche, in a sense, is trying to throw you off your balance. He's really trying to, to, to shake you or to, in a certain sense, embody that violence of thought that, that comes from, you know, not necessarily the outside, but the outside of the interior of your world, it, like the prison. And right. I think in that sense, like all of these things that you've talked about, whether they be your work now on, on, the plates, which I'm fascinated by, I'm going to pester you a little bit about that, but another time. It comes down to this question of, of, of experience and of a certain kind of, you know, it, it reminds me of Foucault's quote when he, when he says that in a sense, he is a moralist, right? He is a moralist insofar as he refuses to see to anything as definitive, untouchable, obvious, or immobile. Right. Right. And to, to him, that's the ta- that's the undefinable task of freedom, uh, right. and I think that if we could call, and it's only through it's only through a refutation of capital R rationality as that which sets aside madness, right? Which puts Habermas on the other side of that history, and Habermas is exposed as the kind of normative that Foucault sees only the history of Tuke and Pinel tearing bodies out of asylums and being hailed as liberators, or the function of Descartes' ignoring of the possibility of madness and his extensive engagement with Derrida on Descartes. It all comes down to this, to these fundamental commitments. So I think like this question of experience is something that I may have previously foreclosed upon, but now I'm kind of, I'm kind of worked up about it. It's something that one often talks about in the Foucault context, well, experience is important, particularly because of Bataille and others, but how important it is actually to the normativity of his thought is something that I think has laid a little bit hidden until now. And, and I'm hoping that it'll be more 
uh, present as a result of these, the forthcoming translation of the Binswango work, in part because, you know, actually it's also later in, in 1984. So at the end of his life in the, he was writing an English preface to history of sexuality too, where he talks about the the work of the history of sexuality operates through the experience, right? Through experiencing forms and ways of thinking about sexuality that are completely different from our own, right? I mean, so just, I mean, for those who aren't familiar, I know you all know this, but maybe some of your listeners don't. I mean, what he's trying to argue in the history of sexuality is actually the notion of sexuality that we have today is a very modern way of thinking about sexuality. It's a very modern way that is very the product of medicalization or a psychiatrization of notions of sexuality, but that there were very different ways of thinking about this space that we now call sexuality. And that's what he traces. So he's tracing the, he's tracing a genealogy of the ways in which we have thought about this space. And he takes us back to the Christian fathers that's in the that's in History of Sexuality 4, which was published posthumously in 2018, but also to the, to the Romans, to the early, to the kind of turn of the common era, and then back also to the ancient Greeks and notions of aphrodisia, a different way of thinking about of, sex, of what we call sexuality today is the effort there. But he's also in the process giving us these experiences of different ways of experiencing this space uh, that we call sexuality today that are, that can be transformative, right? These are different ways of living. And, uh, and it's actually in that context, as he writes the preface, the English preface in 84, that he actually notes, he says, you know, actually I started on this path in the early 1950s, thinking about existential analysis. And, and been spunger. So you see that, 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 that notion of experience that's so important goes all the way back to, to a much earlier time, 1950s, actually. Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing I do want to, do want to emphasize. I mean, I know, I think we've got about 10 more minutes, but I, so I, I think that uh, I do want to emphasize that. So genie, the term genealogy has become very current today and practically anybody who does historical work who has a bit of critical training at this point or who has some interest in critical theory or, you know, has been trained in, you know, the elite institutions that expose them to critical theory is pretty much going to call their work genealogy today rather than history. I was like, history is kind of flat-footed. Anybody who's got a bit of a critical sense or been exposed to Foucault is going to, is going to refer to their work as genealogy. And one of the things I'm trying to do in that piece is to suggest that actually, you know, we now need to think about the genealogical method almost the way that Nietzsche was thinking about historical work from centuries ago when only people were doing histories. In a way, we need to be doing, thinking about the uses and disadvantages of genealogy today for life for practice. And that move that Nietzsche did on history is something that we need to be conscious of now on genealogies, because they don't all, they aren't 
all critical, I don't think, truly critical in the Nietzschean or Foucauldian sense of the term critical, because they don't all now kind of motivate our action, help us understand praxis. I think a lot of the times now, debates over genealogy, philosophical debates over genealogy become somewhat arcane, somewhat that it goes off onto that philosophical plateau that is very distant and unhelpful for practice. I think that this is precisely what Foucault himself warned about with his depiction of genealogy in Society Must Be Defended. When in the first lecture, he says, what is the topic of this year? Well, it's that I've had enough. <laughs> right? Right. And he argues that with any method or with the insurrectionary potentiality of genealogy, one always has to be on the lookout for its decoding and its right. participation in the centralization of the power effects of knowledge. So I think that this question about being hypersensitive and carrying a fundamental commitment to practices of freedom, etc., it's going to require a critical reevaluation of Foucauldians, Deleuzeans, Guattarians, like of today, particularly right. when it comes to the control society right. and to, to disciplinary power as such, right? Your point about, about, about the system of mass incarceration in the United States is absolutely fundamental as we work through Foucault today. And I think that one thing that we always have to be adamant about is that genealogy never serve in the interests of contemporary institutionalized knowledge and their regimes of truth. Because as, as Foucault said, that if the question of ontological astonishment is that there, there is being, then the question of epistemological astonishment ought to be, why is there reality and then truth? What does truth insert into this discussion of present reality. So I think it, in that sense, your piece is a jolt for us to return to that critical disposition with fresher eyes. And for that reason, I want to thank you for writing the piece, for delivering it, and of course, for all of the absolutely remarkable work that you do. I One of my rituals when I read through these uh, College de France lectures is to, once I finish it, go back and listen to all of the scholars you've assembled at the 1313 for Foucault's lectures. I'm two lectures behind with you, <laughs> so I, I've got a few hours worth of you to go through, but I've really been appreciating it. So I wanted to thank you for the work that you do and for taking the time to come speak with us. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, thanks for all the work you all do on your program. We appreciate your support of The Imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.